Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Jared Van Vorst, and I'm your host for the show and one of the pastors at Life Church. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoy this podcast, which is comprised of our sermons as well as some previous content that we've done called Table Talk Thursday. Uh, you can always go back and listen to some of that information. It's more of a sort of a roundtable discussion on various issues in the day, theological questions and the like. Um, today, you're going to be hearing a sermon from Pastor Daniel, and we are in a series called This Is Us, which is a little bit unique to our church, Life Church Canton, uh, talking about our codes, what makes us us, what's our culture, uh, what are the things that we find valuable, um, and what are the things that we pursue. And so one of the things uh, that we talk about at Life Church is the idea of encountering Jesus. It's a major code for us. And so uh, Daniel specifically talks about what Jesus, which Jesus are we talking about? And uh, it's a wonderful message, so I hope you enjoy. also want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast. And then if this podcast has been meaningful to you uh, and you'd like to invest in the work that we get to be a part of at Life Church Canton, go ahead and visit our give page. It's lifechurchcanton.org. Uh, slash give, and uh, there's instructions for how you can make an investment in the work that we get to be a part of. So thank you so much. Uh, Without further ado, please enjoy this sermon from Pastor Daniel Fegui. This is us, Encounter Jesus. Our text this morning will be found in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's account of the life and times of Jesus Christ. It'll be in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 17. If you're there, say amen. 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 All right. Matthew 16, verse 13 and 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They responded to Jesus by saying, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others say Jeremiah and one of the other prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds to Simon and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as we often do come to you, asking that you would, in your supernatural self, invade our natural presence. We pray that heaven would come and rejoice with us, even now. We pray above all things that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God And use it to reveal the Son of God so that everything we do today may be done to the glory of God. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Please be seated. Well, last week we kicked off our old but new series, This Is Us. The first time we did this series, it was meant to introduce and to establish our church code. Six statements that capture who we are as a church and as a people. 
six code statements that help us declare who we are and drive us to who we're becoming. This time around, we're going to unpack a little bit more about our codes in order to remind us of who we are and to encourage us to continue in the spirit of the code, especially in these peculiar times that we find ourselves. Peculiar times that are weighted down with all kinds of distractions and divisions that threaten our unity as a church and as a people. Last week, Pastor Nathan kicked off the series with our foundational code statement, you belong. And so if you're in the room, you see them there. You belong, encounter Jesus, relentless pursuit of one more, whatever it takes, wherever it takes us, and the ultimate driven by new life. Last week, we shared that you belong. As a church, we want you to know you belong here, that you are welcome here. Whoever you are, whatever your story is, you're welcome. We specifically and especially want to invite you to be part of our family because you belong. Well, today we're going to explore our second code statement. We're going to be looking at encountering Jesus. You see, you belong in order for you to meet someone, to encounter Jesus Christ. That's what we do here. Everything we do from stage lighting to the way our seats are positioned to the centrality of the stage and God's word, it's all so you can encounter Jesus. We want you to experience the life-altering power and presence of Jesus Christ. But that statement begs a question. Just who is Jesus? Opinions about Jesus, they come a dime a dozen. Who is this Jesus that you wish for me to encounter? Every single person I know has an opinion about Jesus whether you are a Christian or an atheist, whether you belong to one of the many world systems or whatever worldview you hold, you have an opinion about Jesus. Even those who claim to be apathetic or indifferent towards Jesus have an opinion about Jesus. Here's why. Because in order for you to value someone as insignificant or as inadequate or to be indifferent to someone, you have to have some general assumptions about their value. You've got to have some general assumptions about how this person or that person is not worth your time or your attention. And so even when they say they're spiritual but not religious or they're indifferent towards Jesus, you have an opinion. You consider him to be inconsequential and unworthy of your attention. So perhaps the question is better asked this way. Is your understanding of Jesus accurate? This question about who Jesus is is the most important question that you will ever have to answer. Now, I know as a preacher, you're probably saying, go ahead, preacher, man. There you go exaggerating. The most important question? Even as a Christian, I believe Jesus is important, and I would even concede that he's one of the most important, but is he really, and who he is, and the question about his identity, is that really the most important question? Glad you asked. No one, no one is without an opinion of who Jesus is. In fact, some people hear that statement and say, not only are you exaggerating, but you're ludicrous. Jesus doesn't chart on their radar. For others, Jesus is a one in a sea of philosophers and historical personalities whose contribution to the world is negligible. So wherever you find yourself, whether you believe he is the most important or one of the most important or that this question about Jesus' identity, the reality is this. 
regardless of what you and I think, if Jesus' claim about who he is is true, then all of life, past and present, all of it hangs on whether or not you know him and who he is. Whether or not we have a difference of opinion, if Jesus' claims are true, then there are huge implications for our lives. All of creation hangs in the balance. It impacts our identity, our purpose, and our destiny. But if Jesus' claims are false, then he's either delusional or he's deceptive. Either one of those categories are not worthy of our worship. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, Jesus is either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's either Lord. He can't be all three, folks, logically. He can't be Lord, but yet be insane. And he can't be Lord and yet be a liar. And he can't be those two and be the Lord. He can't be all three. And he surely can't be none because of the the importance and the weight of his claims. Here's a question for you as we think through this. Who is Jesus? What should we be thinking about that as we walk through this? Who exactly is Jesus? What is your understanding of Jesus? Is he a liar? Did he lie about who he said he was? Is he a lunatic? Does he have some delusion of grandeur, some God complex? Or is he Lord? Is he who he said he is and much more than we can imagine? This brings us to our text this morning where this very same question is being posed to the disciples. Christ is asking them rhetorical questions, if you will, but questions that demand an answer. In this passage, Jesus asks the most important question in perhaps the most important conversation he's ever had with his disciples. Now, in order to unpack this text, I've got two observations to help us navigate the text. In verse 13 through 14, we are going to see the consensus of the culture. What's the culture saying about Jesus? What's their rhetoric about Jesus? What's their evaluation and assessment on who Jesus is? And in verse 15 through 17, we're going to see the confession of the disciples, their divine verdict on who Christ is. So let's unpack our first observation, the consensus of the culture. Look with me, if you will, in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? What are they saying? This verse here marks a transitional point in Jesus' ministry. He moves from a more public ministry to people to a more intimate ministry with his disciples, a more one-on-one teaching with his disciples. He leaves behind the pressures of the people and the persecution of the religious and secular authorities. You see, the people wanted to crown him king. They wasn't looking for a Messiah king. They were looking for Burger King, a king who would feed them. They were looking for a genie, someone that will fulfill all of their wishes and make all their dreams come true. And if we're honest, some of us, that's our relationship with Jesus. What can you do for me? The Jewish and the Roman authorities, they saw him as a rival. You see, he had begun to erode their influence and their power over the people. They didn't want that. He was a rival, and so they sought to get rid of their competition. Leaving those distractions behind, 
Jesus now focuses more intently on his disciples. This shift was super strategic. He does this because in just a few months, Jesus would be dead, crucified, leaving behind his beloved disciples. So he surely wanted to make sure they knew who he was. From this verse on, Jesus shifts his focus to the disciples. He begins to reveal even more and more of himself. He wanted them to have no doubt about his person and his purpose, especially in light of his departure. In the immediate context, we find in verse 1 through 12 that Jesus' character, as often as it was, was being again questioned by the pastors, the bishops, the ministers of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who meant to know God, those who you would think had a relationship with God, could not see God in front of them. They continued to question his character, his purpose, and his identity. And Jesus, ever lovingly concerned about his people, he begins to ask them these questions to go deep into their understanding to see perhaps if they too have fallen victim to the cultural consensus out there, to the way the world is speaking about him. Are you influenced by their definition or God's definition? He asks these questions to go deep into the heart of their understanding of who he is. You know, like a good teacher who's been teaching you long enough and they want to make sure you retain the material that they've taught you, what do they do? Pop quiz. Who do people say that I am? What are they saying? What's their rhetoric about me? Now, I don't believe this question is meant to show that Jesus was ignorant of what the world was thinking. Here's why I say that. Passages such as John chapter 2, verse 24, let us know that Jesus is omniscient. Not only did he know what people were saying, he actually knew what people were thinking. So I don't think this is a question that's meant to cause Jesus to be flustered and say, hey, 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 what are they saying about me? Knowing Jesus, knowing his character, this question was meant to plumb the minds of the disciples, to trigger them to think critically about who he says. Uh, given his upcoming departure, he wanted them to wrestle with and be ready for any objection or misunderstanding about who he is. Side note, I was just standing out after the second service, and Pastor John and I were talking, and he says one of the joys that he experiences in life journey is when people ask questions and feel comfortable to ask those questions. And they realize that they are welcome to ask all the questions. Folks, Christianity is not filled with drones who just say amen and don't have a mind. We are people who understand God's word and who are willing to answer the hardest question. And more than answer the question, we want to introduce you to the answer. Jesus takes them to school. He, he moves them into Apologetics 101, taught by Christ himself. It's an awesome thing where you're not just a messenger, but you're also the message. And he begins to teach them and unpack for them more about who he is in order for them to recognize and avoid being swayed by a counterfeit Messiah. He uses this term, son of man. You see it there in the text? Who do people say the son of man is? 
This term is frequently used by Jesus, especially in Matthew's gospel. He uses this term 31 times. It's one of his favorite monikers for himself. Depending on the biblical passage or context, there's at least two ways that this son of man title is used. The first and most generic way is son of man is just a shorthand or another way of saying a human being. Someone who is born of human beings, someone who has human characteristics. So in other words, when I say you are the son of man, I am intending to display the humanity of Jesus Christ. That we don't have a Lord who is not connected to us, but we have a Lord who feels what we feel, who knows what we're experiencing, because he has a human part of him. This is meant to display the humanity of Jesus as the quintessential representative of all of mankind. The second way, though. The second way that this is used, and primarily this is how it's used in Matthew's gospel, it's freighted with theological and messianic undertones. It's an allusion to Daniel chapter 7 where we see this figure called the Son of Man. This is a deep figure. This figure has human looks, looks like a human, walks and talks like a human, but yet he shares the characteristics of God himself. He even shares in God's DNA and authority and power. Jesus here says, who do they say this divine God-man is? You see, that question is rhetorical. And they begin to rattle off names, but he, who do they say I am? This divine being that is like God in every single way, yet human and yet distinct from God. This alludes to the Trinity, the triunity of God. In fact, some biblical scholars say that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. I don't have time to unpack that for you, but that's something to look at, that Christ has been revealing himself from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Revelation. There's no doubt in my mind that Jesus had both meanings in mind, that he is our representative to God, and he is God's representative to us. This title here, Son of Man, is meant to evoke the vision that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. This God-like being that is among us. The fact that every reference to the Son of Man, every context that that reference is found in, always refers to the rule of Christ, the eternal return of Christ as the ruler of all kings, the ruler of the entire universe. Not a tribal king, but a universal king that brings justice to the world. So when he says... Who do people say the Son of Man is? The disciples were supposed to be like, Son of Man? I've heard that before. Ah, hark, the herald angel sings. I hear that. They're meant to pause and listen to the weight of that, the Son of Man. In fact, and a little later in the verse, when we get a glimpse of Jesus' return in verse 27, you would guess it. Here's what it says. The Son of Man will come with his angels and in the glory of the Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. The weight of that as God in person talks to you and asks you, who do they say the Son of Man is? The disciples 
would have been weighted down with perhaps fear, perhaps awe, perhaps confusion. But then they begin to rattle down what the culture is saying, the consensus for the culture. They begin to say, well, some say this, some say that. What is the, what is the culture saying? Look in verse 14. And they said, the disciples respond back to Jesus. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you are Elijah. Some say that you are Jeremiah and yet other prophets. I imagine, because Matthew would have shortened this for our reading, I imagine that each disciple began to name a prophet. Oh, well, some say you're Hosea. Some say you're Zephaniah. Perhaps some said that you're Daniel. Not me, the, the other guy. They begin to rattle names. They begin to, to, to say, you might be this guy. Now, these are three important prophets in Jewish history. In fact, they were one of the most, three of the most important prophets in Jewish history. These men were revered and feared and respected by all. Perhaps not in their day, but at least now, in this time. They were all forerunners. They were all at some point thought to be people who would usher in the return or the, the coming of the Messiah. So these men, these prophets were important, huge people. It's also interesting to see the phrase here, or another prophet. It assumes that Jesus is just one of gen many generic prophets. That's important to where we're going. Perhaps everyone had a favorite prophet that they connected Jesus to. Folks, that's still happening today. People will call Jesus everything but who he said he is. The world still talks about Jesus in a way that puts him on par with everyone else. And let me say this. There is no serious, sound, and respected scholar in the world or historian that denies the existence of Jesus. None whatsoever. You get laughed out of institutions if you deny the existence of Jesus. Some even don't deny the importance of Jesus. He splits time, B.C., A.D. All of that has to do with Christ. So most scholars would not deny the importance of Jesus. They do, however, disagree on exactly who he was and perhaps even the magnitude of his ministry. Some see him as merely a political leader or a social activist, someone who is more concerned about creating a utopian society. Close but no cigar. Others see him as merely a wise guru whose aim in life is to make you self-actualize and allow you to tap into your higher consciousness. Amen. Every time I say higher consciousness, I just want to say, welcome to higher consciousness. Some see him as a philosopher whose ideas are good and can help you improve your life, your quality of life. And some religions even see him as one of many prophets, just one in a long line of messengers of God. No uniqueness, no exclusivity at all. Even those who will self-identify as spiritual, but not religious, they see Jesus as a means or a way to their imagination of who God is. Here's another question for us. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just another guru? Is he just another philosopher, just another prophet? Just one in a line of historical figures who really have no impact on life? To be honest, you and I may find it flattering 
to be called a great preacher, a great philosopher, a world-renowned guru. That's flattering to humans. But when you apply those titles to Christ, they fall miserably short of who he is. He is much more than that. This brings us to our second observation, the confession of the disciples. After listening to their answers, as they rattle off answer after answer, that prophet, this prophet, that prophet, this prophet, everywhere a prophet, old MacDonald, like whatever it was, they went through their list. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say I am? You see, that first question was a setup to cause them to think critically. Now he goes to the heart. You don't see this in the English Bible, but in the Greek, it's called historical present. It means that as they were talking, Jesus interjects and says, pause, wait a second, who do you say I am? You ever ask somebody, hey, what are people saying about me? And they give you all this negative list of what people are saying. And at some point, you got to stop and say, wait, how do you really feel? Because you're passionate about this list of things that I'm doing wrong. And I got to ask the question, when they said I am wrong, did you speak up for me? Jesus interrupts them. Before you list all the nine million prophets that the world has ever known, stop. Who do you say I am? Folks, regardless of what the world is saying, you've got to decide for yourself who Jesus is. The world will give you all kinds of opinions. Jesus asked this question to his closest disciples, his closest companions, those who were close to him. He asked them the most important question, who do you say I am? Uses the but con conjugation to show you that this is different. This is a contrast to what I was saying earlier. Like, that doesn't matter. Your opinion there or the world's opinion doesn't matter. What matters is who do you, who've been walking with me for three years almost, who do you say I am? This question goes to the heart of their understanding. It's the most decisive moments for the disciples. You've been walking with me long enough. Am I just a prophet? You've seen me feed 4,000 and 5,000. You've seen me heal the sick. You've seen me bring back to life. Who do you say I am? Folks, this is why I have a lot of grace for while people doubt Jesus even now. Because if the closest people to him could still doubt, then I have grace for everybody else. I have a lot of grace for people when we go through moments of doubt. Jesus declares himself. He says, who do you say that I am? Decisive moment, if there ever was one. His question was meant to reveal if perhaps the disciples have allowed society to redefine Jesus for them. This question was relevant then, and perhaps is even more relevant now. We live in an age where our understanding of who Jesus is is under continuous attack and assault from outside and sadly more from inside the church. We are in an age where our political and denominational affiliations and our cultural preferences has co-opted and corrupted our view of who Jesus is. In the church even, We've allowed 
the world to reinvent and reimagine Jesus in a way that fits our personal preferences, in a way that fits our own particular worldview. Our society has made Jesus less than who he is, and the church is right there with them. In fact, earlier this year in a recent poll of American evangelicals, American evangelicals are defined in four ways. They believe four things. Let me explain that to you. First, they believe that the Bible is God's authority for life and belief. Amen. That's an American evangelical. Believes that they are to share the gospel, so they are evangelistic. Amen. Hence the name evangelical. Thirdly, evangelicals believe that Christ is the satisfactory sacrifice for their sins. They believe in substitutionary atonement, that Christ died for us to take on our sin death. That's the gospel that you now have righteousness in God, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. Amen. Oh, the gospel should always get a clap among Christians. Fourthly, evangelicals believe that Christ is the only one to trust for their salvation. Those are the people they interviewed. Listen to what they found. 30% of those people don't have a biblical understanding of who Jesus is. Let me put that in perspective for you. There's close to 100 million American evangelicals in America, hence why they're American evangelicals. 100 million folks. 30% is about 30 million. That means there are 30 million Christians walking around confessing a Jesus that doesn't exist. That's 30 million souls that are putting their future, their eternity, into the hands of a Jesus that they do not know. Do you feel the weight of that? Now, unless you think these 30 million Christians are all the way in New York, and that's just where they all are, and they're not among us, even among us, there are those who fit into that category. Even the preachers fit into that category. Those who you would think have a personal relationship with God see Jesus as less than who he is. It's interesting to me that these 30% are willing to stake all of eternity on a Christ that is a figment of their imagination. Question for you and I. When we think about this Jesus, that these 30% of the people see as an amalgamation, if you will, of the cultural consensus, a Jesus that's not found in the Bible, here's my question to us. Who or what is informing your your understanding of who Jesus is. Who informs your understanding of who Jesus is? What's the source of your understanding of Jesus? Is it based on your culture? Is it based on a societal cons- uh, a census and consensus, what they believe? Is it bla- based on your, your political preferences? Or is your view of Jesus based on the Bible? This brings us to the disciples' response to Jesus. Who do people say I am? You're one of many. But who do you say I am? They answer. In fact, Simon Peter answers, always the one to answer for the group. Simon often puts his foot in his mouth if you know anything about his story. But for once in life, let's just capture this moment. For once in life, Simon is right. Even a broke clock is right twice a day. Once in his life, Simon got it right. 
He sat there and finally said, for the group, notice that when he says who the people say, it says they answered, so everybody had an opinion. The hush comes when he now narrows in and says, but who do you say I am? And Simon answers. He answers for the whole group. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus asks an emphatic question, and then Simon gives an emphatic answer. You know, if I was going to create a story and make it up, I would never show where people doubted who I am. I would only show that people saw me perfectly all the time. We see some doubt in the disciples until he narrows in says, who do you say I am? And the disciples answer through Peter, you are Christ. You are the son of the living God. Peter was emphatic. He didn't equivocate. We think you might be the Messiah. Perhaps you've done some Messiah adjacent things, Jesus, and we like that about you. It was emphatic. You are this person. The word Christos here is the Greek word. Uh, the, the word Christ here is the Greek word Christos. It's, it's the same as the word he, in Hebrew, Messiah. So he is saying here, you are the Messiah. Uh, the weight of this is simple. By saying that Jesus is the Christ, Peter is saying that you are the long-awaited Messiah that we've been waiting for, the one who will save Israel and the world from their sins, that since Genesis, all the way in the beginning, from that point on, particularly Genesis 3, the gospel has been preached that Jesus will come and save the world, and lo and behold, you are that Christ. Peter feels the weight of that. Folks, the weight of that revelation is big enough. But then Peter comes back and says, not only are you the Christ, he says you are the son of the living God. Let me see if I can unpack for us what that means. If you aren't familiar with the Hebrew language, you may not get the weight of that declaration. So let's, let's look, kind of look at what that says. You see, when he declares here that Jesus is the son of the living God, he puts Jesus in a class and category all by himself. No longer are you mistaken now for John the Baptist, Jeremiah, or Elijah, or any of the other prophets, but you are different now. None of them bear the moniker, the Son of God. The definite article is important. You are the Christ. What do you mean by that? You are the one-of-a-kind Christ. Uh, to be Christ means to be anointed for a specific purpose, to be God's representative on earth. So while there are many representatives, you are the representative. While there are many sons, because we are all sons and daughters of God, there is the son. You are the perfect, quintessential zenith of all things. You are the highest. That's waiting. Simply put, you are unique. You are exclusive, and you are supreme, Lord. Even more so, Son of Man, a Son of God in this text, carries the weight that Jesus shares the same DNA as God. This is yet another allusion to Daniel chapter 7. This God-man who has all of the qualities of humanity, but also all of the power and qualities of God. In fact, we see this clearer in John chapter 5. 
verse 17 and 18, and another one of Jesus' violent disputes with the, with, the, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish rulers of his day. To even call it a dispute is an understatement. They sought to kill him. In fact, the text said they sought the more to kill him. How do you seek more to kill somebody? You really want to kill, kill me? Like, how do you kill someone twice? They really are telling you that they were passionate about killing him. And why was that? Because he called himself the son of God. Because they understood the implications of that statement. Look in John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Let me paint a picture for you here. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day, the day of rest. In the Jewish tradition, you don't work that day. You don't do nothing that day. In fact, in their understanding, when God said, I rested on the seventh day, he's done. Here Jesus now introduced a doctrinal statement, a new teaching, if you will, to them. Verse 17, but Jesus answered, my father is still working until now. And I am working. Let me explain to you what just happened. He says, you got the Bible wrong. You don't understand God because God is outside of time. You see, God has work, is working, and has stopped working and will work. God is outside of time, so he's not bound by present, past, and future tense. God was working, is working, and will work. And so they didn't understand that. And so now he is teaching them something deeper and essentially telling them that you got the Bible wrong. But more than that, look at verse 18. More than this, it says here, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. You already want me dead. Now you're all the more seeking to kill me. And why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath by healing somebody, go figure, religious people are angry that God did something in somebody's life. Look at what it says next. But he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, they understood the weight of what he was saying. That when he says that I am the son of God, it means I am God. This is the ultimate and supreme confession. Not that he's merely a guru or merely a prophet or merely a philosopher or just a good teacher, but that he is God. Every other moniker, every other title is secondary at best. And at worst, it's slanderous. To call Jesus less than what he declared to be is to make him a liar or a lunatic. But if he is who he says he is, and if he is God, then that has weight. He declares himself as God. Jesus now responds to Peter and says, blessed are you, Peter. The, the confirmation of Peter's confession introduces something even deeper to us. Not only did Jesus say you are blessed, but look at verse 17. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. What's the origin of Peter's confession? God. It's interesting. It takes God in order for us to see God. I wish you were with me this morning. It takes God. 
to open our eyes in order to see him for who he is. Jesus says, Peter, you are blessed because you got it figured out, because you figured it out on your own, because you're so smart. No, you're blessed because you received revelation from God in heaven. Look at the play here that Jesus does. Simon, bar Jonah. Word bar means son. Simon, son of Jonah. Simon, son of a human. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus, son of God. What your daddy couldn't show you, my daddy will show you. What your father can't understand because he's human and you can't because you're human, God, the father, shows us unpacks it for us, reveals to us exactly who he is. Peter is blessed not because he's so smart, but because God revealed himself to him. God declared who Jesus was. You see, folks, the Pharisees didn't even have that privilege. They, some joke and say Pharisees means too far to see, and the Sadducees means too sad to see. However way you class that, they were religious people who knew the texts of the Torah, who knew God's word from age 13, could quote the scriptures. They missed the Lord in their presence. You see, folks, you can have great theological understanding. You can know all the theology in the world and still not know God. You can be a biblical scholar and still not encounter Jesus. If I could be honest with you, that's one of my fears. If you know me long enough, you know that I've spent half, over half of my life studying theology. So this is not a rebuke to theology. Theology is important. In fact, I would argue that theology is needed in our church today. Sound theology, hence why 30% of evangelicals can believe that Jesus is only a teacher. So theology is important. But theology without God, theology without the revelation of God, theology without the presence of the Spirit of God teaching you, grooming you, showing you, is just an empty academic pursuit. It's a waste of time. And I've only seen that end in two ways. People become arrogant or ignorant. They become arrogant towards people thinking that they're better than people because they understand Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and they know what the Bible says. But their lives don't reflect the God that they say they know. Or ignorance. Spend all that time learning the Word of God and have no knowledge and no relationship with the God of the Word. It takes divine revelation, even through studying God's Word, to know intentionally and instinctually and intimately who Christ is. He has to declare himself. Theology without God is empty. Here's my final question for us. Do you know God? Or even better yet, do you know Jesus as God? Do you see him merely as a guru a good teacher, a good philosopher? Have you encountered the Jesus of the Bible? Friends, I started off saying this is the most important question, and I stand there. It is the most important question that we all individually and as a people have to answer. 
Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, that has grave implications for who we are as a people, for our purpose, our identity, and our future. If Jesus is who he says he is, then that means at one point we will all stand before him who is the final judge of all creation and give an account for what we've done with the life he's given us. He is either a liar and perhaps the greatest liar ever to live claiming to be God, or he's a lunatic, someone who ought to be somewhere getting treatment and care for their mental disorder. Or perhaps he's God. And if he's Lord, there's a weight to that. There's a weight to his self-declaration as God. If Jesus is who he says he is, then that means there's 30 million so-called Christians who don't stand a chance to stand before him because they might not have ever encountered him. If he's Lord, that means there is a world that has mangled and misunderstood his purpose and his person. If he's Lord and you are here and you don't know him, can I encourage you online, the balcony, even here, because the tendency could be to assume that you've got it figured out, even as a Christian. But if you don't know Christ, and if you do think you know Christ, those are four important questions that I ask. Who is Jesus to you? What's your understanding of Jesus? What informs that understanding? And do you know him as God? The Bible says whenever you hear God drawing you closer, don't reject it. If you've learned anything in this season, you've learned that life can change just like that. I sat at the table last night with my father and mother who are in town. And they're in their 70s or 80s at this point. At some point, you know, whenever you're over 70, it doesn't really matter what math you, you put to it. Um, and I'm sitting at the table, be, you know, becoming gray. And I'm trying to put myself in their position to see what it looks like for my son Josiah, who is three, to be 40, 50, 60, whatever years old. And at the same time, we're having conversations about the people we've lost just this year alone, and not even COVID-related. People who start at 2020, assuming they will see the end of this year. Yes, we know about the stars, Chadwick Boseman, Kobe, but family members, people who I grew up with, who, you know, after some time you live long enough, you start to lose people. Life happens. Either they relocate to a different geography or they relocate to a different realm. You no longer see them anymore. And you begin to take stock of life and how life happens, how today is not even promised how the next moment we could step out and it could be the last time we see each other. Something about turning a certain age makes you <laughs> a little more morbid. I'm not intending to scare you into salvation. That's not my goal because if I could scare you in, someone could scare you out. 
What I am intending to say is life is fickle. Life is flimsy. Life is a breath here today and gone tomorrow. It's a vapor, James says. If you don't know Christ as God, then you have to stand before him. And the only answer that's good at that moment is that Jesus paid it all. Unto him I owe. Sin left the crimson stain, but Jesus washed me white as snow. That what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So if you're under the sound of my voice and you hear that, and God's working on your conscience, can I be as bold as to lead you in a prayer? Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you believe in Christ or not, even as a believer, if you know you've wavered because we all have in our understanding of who Christ is, perhaps we can pray together. And I have some action steps for us, but wherever you are, talk to God. You don't need me. I just want to share with you how I would talk to God. The prayer could be simple. God, I hear the preacher man speak about you as God. Jesus, I hear him speak of you as higher than any philosopher, higher than any teacher, higher than any minister, higher than any guru. And I also hear him say, the revelation of who you are is only through God. And so God, reveal yourself to me so I can declare with Peter, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And friends, if you pray that prayer, we want to hear from you. We'd love to connect with you and perhaps not answer your questions, but as I said earlier, introduce you to Christ who is the answer. And for those of you who know Christ, and we're always going to be knowing more and more of him. That's the importance of encountering Jesus, the man at the well who Jesus touched in the eye, who saw him once and said, Jesus touched him, and he says, I can see shapes. And then Jesus touched him again. He says, now I can see clearly now the rain is gone. That's where they got the song from. <laughs> Every encounter with Jesus causes our sight of him to be clearer and clearer. The more of Christ we have, the more we can see him and see us for who we truly are. So here's how I like to continue to encounter Jesus. I do it in three ways, through word, worship, and wife, and I'll explain that. Through the word, daily meditation and regular Bible study. Feed yourself. Regularly studying God's word. There's a difference between meditation and study. Rarely being in God's word, feeding your spirit. Biblically sound sermons, not just sermons that are Bible adjacent, but sermons that are based on God's word through worship, weekly gathering in person and online, coming together with the saints to worship God. Create yourself a playlist that you can listen to regularly. Wendy, I love you. You know why? For many reasons, because you're God. But one of the reasons I love Wendy is that she's in her car playing her worship music as she works. You might see her in a traffic like, man, she is in the third heaven. Good Lord. <laughs> Create a playlist. Regularly saturate your mind with God's word. You and I are inundated with a world who erodes our understanding of who God is. The least we could do is put some good stuff back in. 
and through the wife, his wife. The Bible calls the church the body of Christ, but also the bride of Christ, his wife, to indicate how much he loves her. You can know God better and continue to encounter him in community, whether it's life groups, great opportunities to minister together. Sue is here. She leads the women's ministry. You get to minister together, love together, grow together, and encourage each other together in the truth and fan that flame that God has put in you or through life journey, through the Explorer course, learning more and more about who Christ is, a great opportunity for us to jettison all of the things we think we know and have some real conversations about what really is true. Grab coffee together, Zoom together, FaceTime together, mask time together, whatever it is. Do life together. Friends, it's been a pleasure sharing God's word with you. If you would stand together as we pray. The revelation of who Jesus is does not come from human beings. It comes from God. We can spend our life digging into the scriptures and still miss who God is. In fact, in the last service, as I was talking to Pastor John, I get all my good thoughts from Pastor John. He says, what you taught reminded me of the scripture that says the, the Pharisees studied all of the law. And Jesus says, but yet you miss who the law was talking about. You studied all of God's word that was pointing you to the Messiah, and yet the Messiah stands in front of you, and you could not recognize him. May it not be so for us. May we have spent time worshiping the true and living God and not a God of our imagination. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We started off with you, we continued with you, and we are ending with you. Because it's all about you, Christ. Everything we do, from how we light our stage, to the music we choose, to how we position the pulpit to be center, the Word of God central to our community. All of that points to the fact that it's all about you, Christ. We asked in the beginning that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God to reveal the Son of God. And Father, I humbly ask that you've done so now. I pray that hearts have been encouraged to pursue you. That those who know you will stick deeper and deeper into encountering you. Those who've never met you will be introduced to you today. And that lives will be changed. Whether you're hearing it on a podcast, online somewhere, or watching it later, or even on Facebook, wherever you are right now, the Spirit of God knows no boundaries. And may God's Spirit use God's Word to reveal God's Son so that everything we do will be done to the glory of God. And all God's people said, Amen.